The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to today's uh, Barron's Live uh, Financial News Edition. I'm Jeremy Chan, uh, Trading and Tech Correspondent for Financial News. Joining me today is the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Nicholas Lyons, to discuss if London is losing its edge as the world's financial centre and what can be done to keep it on top. Thank you for joining me, uh, Lord Mayor. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I'm delighted to join you. Let's kind of jump straight into it. You know, the City of London puts out a report every every year, kind of judging the sort of uh, the the rankings of the financial centres around the world and. London usually ranks number one, and again, in the latest report, it ranks number one, but this time it's a, it's a tied first with uh, New York. Is this more so London losing its edge or other financial centers kind of rising to meet the challenge that London has? Well, I, I, I think um, uh, coming first is always uh, generally good news. So uh, first equal is still first. Um, but there's no doubt that there's quite a lot happening in New York um, uh, that is uh, that is going well, uh, and in London um, there is a huge amount that's going well. But there are certainly areas where we have work to do, and particularly around um, what we what we describe as the growth economy, the sort of the innovation piece. We've got great innovation in the country. But we have, uh, I think, and there's been a lot of discussion about it. We have a gap in our capital markets around later stage venture capital. And I think that's a pretty fundamental part of uh, the fact that a lot of these brilliant growth companies that we have in the UK end up uh, looking at raising capital elsewhere. They may remain unlisted and go, but still go offshore. Um, but they uh, are relying on foreign capital rather than UK capital. And I think that all comes, comes back down to uh, liquidity in our markets and uh, new the new listing environment. So, look, I think there's a lot about London that continues to be uh, thriving and, and doing exceptionally well. But we have to be, uh, uh, you know, brutally honest about areas which are not functioning as well as we want, and we have to remedy them. Yeah, because I think what you're part of the task force that's trying to reinvigorate the listings, the sort of IPO market here in London. You know, generally, what are sort of the issues kind of driving firms away from a London IPO? And what can the government, the city generally do to kind of alleviate those sort of problems? Look, I think there's a there's a bit of a, a cultural issue here. And if you were to speak to Julia Hoggett, who's very eloquent on this, she would uh, she would give you a number of components to that. I think one of the things that we are, uh, you know, very mindful of is the fact that over the last 20 years, there has been a process of de-equitization in the UK, which is partly to do with <clears throat> what, what we've done with our uh, final salary pension schemes by effectively closing that, we put it into runoff. And so what was invested 60% in equities is now less than 10% invested in equities. 
But it's also to do with a trend that we don't see just in the UK, but elsewhere as well, which is that private equity has, has, has really mobilized and uh, acquired a lot of public companies. And so there's a lot of productive, uh, uh, productive assets that are owned by uh, private equity firms. So, you know, when you look at the number of UK firms that have been listed, we, we are, well, you're probably talking about 2,000 20 years ago, you're probably talking about 1,000 now. Um, so that is a process that I think uh, we, we, need to, we need to address. And is there anything that the city can do to become the, the sole number one again? Or, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, <clears throat> we absolutely need to address this issue. And one of the ways that I think that we can do it is by looking at our, our pension system. Um, we have got a very big pension system. It's the second biggest pension system in the world, but it's very conservatively invested. And when you get to a situation where the governor of the Bank of England says, we're too risk averse, you know, you know, you've got to address the issue. And I think that's, that's, that is probably the biggest cultural difference between uh, the US and the UK. The US is pretty much always risk on, um, whereas uh, the UK has, got, has become very conservative, particularly in long term savings. And, and that's been slightly disguised, the returns in our pension system and our fund system has been rather disguised by a very long bull market, you know, bond, bond market uh, bull run. Um, now that in interest rates have changed, now that interest, long-term interest rates have risen uh, and uh, we've got inflation back in the system, you really do have to have exposure to, uh, you know, real economy assets, productive assets. Um, and that's really where we need to start addressing this problem. So one of the things that I'm proposing is that we think about uh, a, a sort of a collective investment vehicle, a, a future growth fund, which pensions, which otherwise, you know, don't have the capacity to explore these sort of asset classes can actually participate in. Uh, and in so doing, hopefully also create uh, real momentum around the growth economy so that we're putting more money, directing more money into those growth companies and investing alongside all of those sophisticated uh, international investors that we're so delighted to see endorsing our science and technology by um, investing in these companies. It's interesting you mentioned that the, um, the future growth fund, I think you want to try to build a pool of at least 50 billion to set it started, started off, you know, how, you know, how's that pool going to be formed and what sort of, you know, vehicles is it looking to invest in? Well, <clears throat> what we're envisaging is that over a period of time, you know, between probably now and 2030, we, we build it up to that sort of a scale. At the end of the day, there's no point in having money in a fund where you're not ready to invest it. So, you know, we need to, we would need to put in place the investment function uh, and then start to, um, uh, start to invest. I think in the early stages, when you're building something like this, you're probably going to be, you know, in, investing in fund of funds, uh, as well as doing a little bit of direct investment. But over a period of time, more and more direct investment and uh, sitting alongside the, the likes of, sort of Sequoia Capital and Ontario teachers. I think the fact is that um, uh, we want scale because that gives you, uh, it gives you scope to have risk diversification. We've got a lot of tech companies. I think, you know, there's a very interesting debate that's going on at the moment about 
where's the best place to have an AI company or a cryptocurrency company? Um, I think there is, uh, the US is quite a, a hostile market for that at the moment. But you're, going to, you're seeing some, some real engagement by UK regulators looking at this and saying, how, how do we get our heads around the regulation of these sort of companies? And I think there is a real opportunity for the UK in those spaces. That's sort of in the, you know, the broader tech space, but we've got a huge number of fintech businesses, you know, so many fintech startups uh, and more fintech unicorns than you know, the rest of um, the EMEA region sort of put together. Um, then you think about green and renewable technology, where again, you know, Britain is coming up with some of the, the you know, the, the great ideas, leading, leading, leading edge ideas, and then life sciences and biotech, which has always been an area of speciality in the UK. So those are four really big pillars, and you need scale if you're going to get be able to invest in all of those. But more importantly, it's this is not just about seed capital. This is about later stage Series A. And the ability to follow your money through the Series B, Series C, Series D rounds as well, because that's you have to be able to do that, and you need scale in order to be able to do that. So, so that's why I think you know moving to scale is good. Now, not all of this money is going to go into the future growth fund. We've got some very big players in the UK who already have an exposure to the venture capital and private equity asset classes, who are absolutely able to sort of compete um, uh, on a standalone basis for whom a future growth fund isn't going to make any sense at all. But we've got a very, very diversified pension system. When you look at um, Canada and Australia, they started consolidating their pension schemes 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and now you've, you've got some really sizable uh, consolidated pension pots. We've got, you know, tens of thousands of pension pots that need to be consolidated. That's a slower process, but we've got to give a lot of those pension schemes the opportunity to invest in an asset class like this. And, and the best way is through a collective vehicle. Great. And I'd just like to remind the audience that um, if you have any you know, questions for the Lord Mayor, we will have some time at the end to uh, ask them. So please uh, do submit your questions if you have any. Um, but you know, moving on to sort of the also the continued talk on competitiveness of London, Another one big discussion is also on Brexit. There's kind of been a very, I would kind of describe it as a slow deflation of um, jobs and, you know, moving away from the city. A lot of, you know, new graduate jobs are moving to, you know, content other cities like Paris. You know, what can the city do and respond to, you know, jobs that are moving, you know, either they're moving from London to the continent or are just not being um, offered here anymore? Well, look, we're not seeing a lot of that, to be honest. When when the analysis was done, we looked, we commissioned some independent analysis to be done um, in the wake of Brexit, and the, that, that showed that about seven thousand jobs had moved to the continent. And bear in mind that when I'm talking about the continent, I'm, I'm not talking about one location. I'm talking about Paris and Frankfurt and Amsterdam and Dublin and Luxembourg. You know, so and and what happened? Th those were jobs where people were doing. Uh, sales jobs specific to um, you know European uh, destinations. What's also happened in reverse is that a lot of European banks and insurance companies and asset managers have been building up their UK business because they, 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 they realized they needed to build up the capability there. So we're not actually, I wouldn't, I don't recognize the, 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 the scenario of 
particularly sort of young professionals moving. London continues to be an absolutely fantastic place to live and work, um, you know, with, with great educational offering, great cultural offering, great, you know, housing and, and open spaces. People love being here. Everywhere I go around the world, the last thing everybody says as they shake my hand as I go out of the door is, London's my favorite city in the world, which is a lovely thing to hear. So, look, you know, I think what I would say is that Brexit is very much in the rearview mirror as far as the city is concerned, as far as the UK is concerned. Um, there is a very different beat to the relationship with the EU now after the Windsor framework and, you know, moving forward, making some, you know, tangible progress on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So when I, you know, I, I had a meeting earlier this week with um, the EU Commissioner of Financial Services, Mairead McGuinness. She was here in the Mansion House uh, with the European Ambassador, Pedro Serrano. There's a completely different tone to the conversation. We've we, we sort of moved away from the, the, the political stance that was uh, uh, dominating the dialogue. And now it's much more about what, what can we do together? You know, we, 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 the situation is as it is. So let's look look for opportunities to do things constructively together in our mutual best interest. And you know, the memorandum of understanding is back on the table now. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not holding my breath that we're going to suddenly sort of rush into a process towards, uh, you know, regulatory equivalence. That's not going to happen. But there is there are many more touch points now and many more constructive uh, discussions taking place. So. Uh, uh, we are seeing in the streets of London uh, a significant increase in footfall on Mondays. Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays have always been incredibly busy. Friday is also uh, increasingly uh, busy. So there is a there is a lot of vibrancy in London these days. Yeah, is, is there generally a thaw? Because obviously you, you hosted uh, Commissioner McGuinness just a couple of days ago. Is, do, you, do you think that there, there is room now for negotiation for sort of third-party access to, to EU markets for the city. Look, I think it's too, too soon to be thinking about what, what it might lead to. I think we're just grateful that we're having a very sort of warm dialogue. Um, uh, Commissioner McGuinness continues to, to talk about, um, you know, the uh, uh, wanting to move clearing uh, of euro assets back to uh, the continent. Um, and that's completely understandable. I think that most of the practitioners would say they want the most efficient, effective uh, execution with the biggest liquid liquid pools that resides in London. 90% of euro assets are cleared in, in London these days. But, you know, there is a political dimension that's not going to go away in terms of Europe wanting to have a certain amount of security around its financial services business. And look, again, it's perfectly healthy for uh, countries to want to build up their financial services business. We are, you know, we, we trade with everybody. We have, you know, open, uh, as open borders as we can. Uh, there are a lot of free trade agreements that we're striking around the world at the moment. There is a, there is a sense of um, uh, engagement from the UK with, uh, with people all around the world to try and create you know, more opportunities for us, not only to trade goods, but particularly services. Um, so I think, you know, that again, I think is a, a very help, helpful and healthy backdrop to what's happening in financial services in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I guess you've been fairly upbeat about the sort of 
the efforts that the UK is making to keep London as the, as the top spot? You know, is there any areas where, you know, that London still enjoys an advantage and, you know, how do, you know, how do we need to kind of cultivate those sort of advantages? I think the biggest, um, you know, the biggest strength that London has always had is that it's a place that people feel comfortable doing business and, and doing business with. And that's built on three very fundamental things that don't go away. We have a, a system of parliamentary democracy that works. Sometimes it works too efficiently. Um, secondly, we have the primacy of the rule of law and an independent judiciary. This is a place where people like to have dispute resolution because of the independence of the legal system and the quality of the lawyers. And the third thing is we have regulators that people can deal with. You know who you're dealing with. It's one regulator. Uh, and uh, we have, uh, that, and our regulator is, is very credible and very well regarded around the world. Those are three really important things if you're thinking about, you know, where to have assets managed, for instance. But, you know, we, we've also got, um, the other thing I think that, that really does differentiate London enormously is the breadth and depth of the talent that's here. And it's not just, uh, you know, financial talent. It's all of the bits that underpin markets. So when we are talking, as we did yesterday at our Net Zero Delivery Summit, pulling people together from all around the world to talk about this, the journey to Net Zero and a fair transition, we, we can deliver the, the thought leadership that doesn't exist elsewhere because we've got specialists who, are, who can help with you know, the law, with uh, infrastructure funding and infrastructure, you know, the structuring side, with risk uh, risk management with compliance with you know actuaries with the insurers the special specialty insurers as well as the providers of, of financing and, and what people talk to me about when i'm abroad and they talk about their you know huge sustainable infrastructure plans that they need to put in place to help them on their journey to net zero is they say we need the input of the the, the, the uh, intelligence, the, the thought leadership that exists in London, because we can go to one place and we can get this um, composite uh, knowledge. That's an immensely powerful uh, strength that we have. And of course, you know, we have, you know, we're still a dominant player in derivatives, huge in, in bonds and green bonds, uh, for currencies. And, and as I said, you know, 90% of, of euro-denominated securities are cleared in, in, in the UK. So there, there are deep, deep pools of liquidity here too. Yeah, but it, it sounds like to you, the sort of pe people capital, so to speak, is sort of the big advantage that you feel London, you know, is, is number one at. I think that's fair. I think that's, a, that's absolutely a, a, a fair way to characterize it. And that manifests itself, of course, in the fact that you know, we, we've got the second largest pot of managed assets in the world. You know, the US has a, you know, dramatically large domestic market. But if you as a, let's say you're a, you know, Far Eastern sovereign wealth fund or a Canadian pension fund or an Australian superannuation scheme, and you're looking to have international diversification in your assets, you're probably not going to go first to New York for that. You'll come to London, you'll come to the UK. Because the UK is a funnel for international capital. We, we, we run between 11 and 11 and a half trillion pounds of money in the UK. That's three times the GDP of Germany. This, this is a huge amount of money. 40% of that is, is owned by overseas asset owners. They, but they're 
they have moved that money here to be managed here because of the expertise that lies here, but also because of that funnel effect of money coming into the UK and then getting invested you know, across broad asset classes and different markets around the world. And I'd just like to remind everyone again that uh, if you have any questions for the Lord Mayor, uh, please feel free to submit them and we'll try to save some time at the end to get to them. But normally, uh, Baron's Life is a, a financial podcast and the Lord Mayor's primary responsibilities now are just be the sort of spokesperson, the ambassador for, for UK financial services. But it also has ancient responsibilities, uh, some of which you participated in very recently. I was just wondering if you want to kind of share your your own kind of thoughts and your own sort of experiences being at the, the coronation of, of King Charles. Well, I would love to do that. Yeah, it, 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 and it is, you're quite right. My, my main role, my main day job is representing UK financial and professional services, but also London as a global financial center. And that takes up the vast majority of my time and causes me to go abroad a lot and probably be out, out of London 100 days a year. But there is a a very important civic and ceremonial role to the Lord Mayor as well, um, which uh, every now and then takes on a really extraordinary uh, uh, feature. And, and, and I'm lucky enough in my year as Lord Mayor to be uh, in post for uh, King Charles and Queen Camilla's coronation. So I have a role to play in that. Um, the City of London uh, historically is its own city-state uh, that goes back a, a thousand years, goes back to 1067, um, where William I uh, effectively gave the city the authority to run its own affairs. That was then confirmed by the Magna Carta in 1215. And since then, was, we've had Lord Mayors since 1189, but the city has always had a very close relationship with the crown. And that historically in medieval times manifested itself in uh, the city being the place that sovereigns raised the, the, the money to uh, to raise an army. Uh, and so, um, f you know, from that time, the, the Lord Mayor has always participated in the very big ceremonial occasions uh, in the UK. So my involvement was to participate in the King's procession. So I wore a pretty splendid um, coronation gown that was last used in 1953 needed a little bit of work from the tailor. It was a little bit um, uh, moth-eaten, but it's repaired nicely. And there was a really special thing, actually, that I did that is, is, is very unusual. I, I get to carry something called a crystal scepter. This is a, a thing about 18 inches long. It was given to the city of London by Henry V after the Battle of Agincourt. So, as again, he came to the city, borrowed money, raised an army, fought the French, won the Battle of Agincourt. He borrowed the money from us. We took, as good being good bankers, we took collateral for the loan. And we took the collateral of the crown jewels. So he won the Battle of Agincourt, paid back the loan, received his crown jewels, and gave us as a, a thank you the crystal scepter, which is made of rock crystal. Uh, and at one end, it has a, a, a sort of a gold claw, which has you know, uh, rubies and sapphires and pearls. And it's a priceless item. It's only ever used at coronations and at the ceremony when you become Lord Mayor, it's presented to you on a, on a cushion. But it's only ever held um, by the Lord Mayor and it's held during the coronation. So I had to uh, make my way up the aisle of Westminster Abbey and sit through the service for, for two hours, very, very close to where the 
coronation itself took place and make sure I didn't drop the crystal scepter. I didn't want to be remembered as the Lord Mayor who dropped the crystal scepter. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And I think you also picked up um, a, a souvenir, so to speak, for the, um, for the behalf, on behalf of the city. Now, you're going to have to fill me in on that one. What, what are you referring oh, I, to? I, I believe you picked up the, the anointing screens for... Oh, I um, see. Ah, okay. So the anointing screen was actually funded by the City of London and the livery companies. So the anointing screen is the thing that, that hides the king when the anointing oil is applied. Um, and uh, this was... Uh, so the work, this beautiful piece was done. We had the some of the livery companies, the broderers, the drapers, the carpenters who put the, the wooden piece in place, um, the weavers, of course. Uh, so this was, it was rather special to have the, that most sacred part of the service, knowing that the City of London and the livery companies had contributed to, uh, to the cost of that. And, and, and uh, so that was a really special part of it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Great. And we have about five minutes left, so I would love to get over to some of the audience questions. Again, if you have any for the Lord Mayor, uh, feel free to submit some. Um, we already have a couple in. Um, Scott asks, um, there was a story in the Financial Times uh, yesterday that cited the competition from, you know, Brussels, not the US was sort of, you know, pushing uh, the, was this was this sort of, I guess, bigger issue. And again, referring to the sort of EU swaps that you've referred to earlier today, you know, uh, how, you know, is, 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 is Brussels the sort of bigger competition compared to the U.S.? And then he also kind of asks questions about housing, you know, that London is fairly unaffordable for millennials. Well, I, I have great sympathy on the housing front. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately, that's true of many of our financial centers. Um, you know, it's, it's true, certainly, of Singapore as well and Tokyo. Uh, it is a it is a challenge. Um, and no, I don't see Brussels as being our main uh, competitor. I do see New York as being the main competitor. And I actually would say, I think New York has been the, the biggest beneficiary of Brexit, funnily enough. Um, but, you know, we do so much business with the US uh, and we have such sort of close partners. It's almost, uh, you know, although we, 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 we always like um, tables and we like to come top of tables, the fact of it is, it's the business that we do together that's really more important. Um, so, uh, so I would say uh, no. New York is uh, is, is as that uh, analysis showed. New York and, and London uh, uh, neck and neck. Mm -hmm. But do you think that that housing problem that that Scott has mentioned would would kind of dent the sort of people capital that you said was one of big, London's biggest strengths? I don't think so. I think I think. Um, uh, there is, it, it, it's a, it's always a challenge. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, what we've seen is a, is a rather sort of perverse, um, increase in rental costs that have made it more difficult for, um, younger professionals to live close to London. We do have a good infrastructure system. So you, I mean, unfortunately it tends to mean you just got to live a little bit further out and take, you know, take trains in. But there again, we've also got the ability of people to spend more time working from home. Uh, and certainly within the city, there are very few organizations that are insisting that everybody works from the office all the time. I, and I think that will stay the case. I think people will be given the opportunity to continue to 
work from home to a certain extent. So it is one of those um, it's one of those things that um, you know we'll see what happens to the housing market if interest rates remain high for an extended period of time. That could have an impact on uh, on flat prices and house prices. Mm -hmm. I have a question on IPOs. Um, I think the question is pretty much asking, um, you know, for 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 firms who do want to list in London, what kind of are the big advantages, you know, over listing in New York when you know you can be valued maybe magnitudes higher than what you what did you have in London? Yeah, it's interesting. I think if you look at um, uh, New York, of course, listing costs tend to be quite a lot higher than they do in the UK. And there's a lot of work going on now about the listing rules. There was an announcement by the FCA three weeks ago, but basically saying we're looking very, very closely at this to try and make sure that we're dismantling the sort of the obstacles to people listing here in, in, in the UK. Um, the work of uh, the chief executive of the London Stock Exchange, Julia Hoggett, is also looking at the possibility of a sort of a crossover market. So we don't have this cliff edge of, of, of uh, you know, this sort of sudden significant increase to additional disclosure requirements and, and regulatory requirements to be able to, to list so that people can have access to capital and have an intermittent uh, 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 valuation uh, market for their, uh, for their stock uh, but still have many of the benefits of being a listed company without having um, some of the disadvantages. I think the other thing to say is that it's very difficult to make apples and apples comparison between, you know, the PE of the UK and the PE of the US. Don't forget that the five biggest companies in the US are all technology companies with an aggregate market value of something like $8 trillion. Um, we've only got one um, uh, a technology company within uh, the FTSE 100, and that's not really, you know, comparable to um, any of the sort of FANG companies. <clears throat> if we are successful about what we're trying to do with the uh, uh, Future Growth Fund, and that we keep more of these companies growing here and ultimately scaling and staying here in the UK and potentially listing, then you know the success of that will be the number of you know, tech companies and, and, and life science companies that we have in the FTSE 100. And I'd like to see in 10 years, I'd like to see 10, 10 tech companies in the FTSE 100. Then you'll see a, you know, much more comparable comparison in terms of uh, you know, PE valuations. Um, I think the, the other thing I would say is there are plenty of UK companies who have, which have listed in New York and then found that their share price hasn't performed that well afterwards. So, um, Perhaps um, we have a saying in the UK, all that glisters is not gold. Um, sometimes it's not as good as it looks. Mm -hmm. Great. And I think that's a good note to end on. I just want to you know, thank you, Lord Mayor, for joining us and for you, the audience, for joining us today as well and uh, for listening in. Uh, Barron's Live will be back again tomorrow when analysts from McCloskey will discuss on Opus Energy Insights if the demise of coal is finally here or if it's the global demand will kind of keep it here a bit longer. Thank you again for listening and have a good rest of the day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.